Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Loving all the feedback too. Thank you to all those who've been ringing and writing to me. Can't do it without you. Andy Rashid is my guest today. He's a photographer professionally, does amazing photographs, and he's been building this special type of lap steel guitar and drums out of plywood. They're pretty incredible, and Andy's going to tell us about that. He's also going to tell us about his dream of becoming a musician when he was a young man and the trials and tribulations of that, and God, I know I wanted to be a muso when I was young, and probably heaps of you out there probably would want to do something special yourselves, and it's a hard road. Anyway, Andy's a great guy. Really appreciate him coming on the show. Take it away, Andy. Tell us about the Fibonacci series. It's uh, an exponential growth of a shape. It's the development of the previous number plus itself. I, I think that there's something really fascinating about the way nature contends with shape and form and structure. And it's. I think that there's a key in there. Well, obviously there's a key in there. You've had billions of years of development to deal with sound, liquid, structure, all of these different things. Um, and I got really quite hooked into that idea of spirals and form and um, how you might be able to apply that in different ways. And I find it fascinating. So I've, I've, I photograph flowers. That's been one of, one of my things. And so there's been this really deep investigation of the structure and colour and the way light bounces off flowers and you know when you when you get into and I do macro abstracts that's that's really my thing so how um, did you get there I had children <laughs> and so I wasn't able I'd I had I was a nature photographer already and then had kids and my time as, a, as an amateur or professional no, it's pro, oh, well it'd been part of I'd done it originally as an amateur then I'd started my business as a freelance photographer. Yeah. And then we had kids pretty soon after that and I found myself desperate to take engaging, exciting photographs and didn't have the means. And um, I got an afternoon off one day and we were living in Belair National Park and I pulled out the macro bellows that I that I had with this camera kit that I hadn't really used. I put a 50mm lens on it and... I started walking around, I sat down in one spot and I just picked stuff up and started photographing it with this bellows and there was this light bulb moment where there was this recognition that I could do these beautiful, deep, mm. abstract, interesting, engaging, painterly images 
in virtually no time at all. So I didn't have to wait for a lighting event because you could just literally create your own by movement. You know, if, you, if you've got the sun over your left shoulder, mm. it's one lighting event. If you're straight, straight into the sun, it's another lighting event. If you turn the other way, you know, you've got the really deep blue sky. There were all these, all of these options just in how you contended with that object. And it was just this unfurling. And so for the next 18 months, um, I had my camera with a pistol grip tripod. I'd get out on the driveway. My kids would be running around my feet. I'd have seven or eight flowers in a, in a vase or something, like just sitting there, and I'd pick one up and I'd interrogate it for yeah, well, half an hour. Some of the stuff, it was just surreal. Bending yeah. light, the, the refraction and, and the way light contended with the surface of flowers once you got in really close or wetting a flower and then the flower became the vehicle for the water to sit on yeah. and the water would bend the light. And so there's all of this crazy um, spectral breakup and melding of, of colour and form. It's, it's unreal. Have you got a really strong sense of colour? Um, I found myself sitting at the traffic lights. This is probably a good example. I, I was sitting at the traffic lights and there's this Ford colour and it's orange. And I'm big, yellow oranges. They... they changed my whole perception of life. <laughs> I've got an orange, orange door. That's, that's pretty much. <laughs> and I was sitting there and I realised that I'd gone into like a semi-trance because the sun was hitting this colour. And I was yeah, just kind really. of going, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, then the, the light went green and everyone started to move. I went, oh, I'm in a car. I'm driving a car. Oh. Yeah. You know? Do um, you have that with other things like music or? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's, it's kind of a combination of that same level of, sensory appreciation i love food like it's not this isn't just a little this isn't a little interest this is my whole day is driven by can i get a really great lunch can i get wow. a really great coffee can i can i get a really great dinner and often it means that i have to make those things yeah but it's really important and yeah, it pisses my most of my family off now. Because they're, they're hungry. And they just want food. They don't yeah. really care. And I'm going, no, this is... Has this been something all your life? Or yeah, a, yeah. Do you remember the first time in your life where you, you have this realisation where, you know, these century, sensory things are so important? I think they've just always made sense. Mm. And, and it's been... I'm a hedonist. <laughs> I, I want to... Like, I want to have... It, in a good way. In a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I've got to be a functional hedonist. <laughs> functional hedonism with Andy Rashid. Mm. There's an idea there. There could be something there. Well, I was in a band called Head on a Stick. <laughs> Head on a Stick, Head on a Stick. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Um, mm. You played noise, noise music. <laughs> no, it was actually... <laughs> it was just jam quite, band. Quite you, just, <laughs> you just played solos. We don't care about the audience. <laughs> this is for us. I think that it shaped my life, really. The... The importance of each day, having some joy. Wow. How do you find joy? And yeah, that's, right. that's really, really shaped my life. So it's, it's decision-making about the profession that I chose. Like I really yeah. found, I find great joy in engaging with people. I find great joy yeah. in um, creating. I find great joy in problem-solving. Yeah. So, you know, as a photographer, you can walk into an environment, you've never seen it, you've never met the people immediately it's about developing a relationship that isn't status-based. So, because you can't have status. It's, it's not viable to have status. How come? It, well, because early on in my career, 
I was assisting another photographer, very good photographer, and he got us in to set up for this really high-profile pharmaceutical boss, and we were going to do a a portrait of this guy. And this man walked in, and the photographer came up to him and kowtowed and went, oh, sir, sir, you know, we're honoured that you're here kind of thing, basically that sort of attitude. And this guy then took the role of the boss. Yeah. He's the boss. Yeah. And we ended up with these beautiful, beautifully lit, wonderful photographs of a man that didn't want to be photographed, getting photographed by people that didn't want to photograph him. Nobody enjoyed the experience and it really showed in the photographs. He just looked stiff and red-faced and he was put out and it was this fantastic lesson. As opposed to having a human photographing a human. Yeah. So if you walk into a space and it's you and me and we've got, to, we've got to get something done and we're going to have fun while we do it, but it's not relevant to what's going on in your workplace. It's not relevant to what's going on in your life. It's relevant to this moment here and you and me. Mm. That was a profound learning experience. And so, and it's this sense of... You've really got to, if, if you want people to be open, you need to be open. And it's almost like you're the custodian of that person through that process and you need to get them to the end of the process and have them smiling. That's really important. You don't want them burnt, burnt out by the time they get to the end. They've got to get to the end and, be, and go, oh, that was, that was actually good fun. Thank you. Mm. And that's my goal. Mm. Because then... If you can do that, you've got a very, very good chance of getting a really beautiful open portrait. Yeah, right. Because you've got connection. And nobody's getting tired. They're, they're, they're just involved in this thing that's good fun. Yeah. It's not tiring. And hopefully there's this huge level of, res- of respect that I bring to anybody that I'm photographing. Um, and I've had days where I've, I've photographed a homeless person and then gone and photographed the CEO of Santos. Like, that's actually happened in, in the same day. Same room? Um, no, different rooms. <laughs> and it's the same. Everybody gets treated the same, first class, first class all the way. Yeah, right. Bloody good. Because you don't know who's in front of you. So there's the people who've got success or financial success, I, they have to prove themselves to me before they win my respect. What about the homeless person? Well, they... Because they can be assholes too. You they, know yeah, yeah, people are people. Yeah. But there's, there's always... There's a level of compassion. I didn't mean to sound harsh with the, the rich dudes, but it's this thing... I always look at it and go, at what expense did you get this position? What was the expense? And, or what, what's the background that has put you in this spot? How did you, how did you come to be here? And I'm more interested in... What are you thinking? How do you feel? Are you reasonable? The other aspect of, I guess, the, the status thing is that if someone in the room has a better idea than me, that flies. That idea gets the airtime because it's the best idea in the room. I'm not actually interested in the ownership of the idea. It's that we come in, we work together, and at the end of the day, we can all stand back and go, hey, we all had a part in that and that was really mm. good. Yeah, team player. I guess, yeah. Mm. And And... It's funny sometimes, like I shoot a lot of food, which is good. We like shooting food. You get to, you get to eat it. Do you shoot your own food? Uh, no. Oh, no, never actually. Oh, you should. I, I did shoot a barbecue that I was making the other day to send to my friend because he, you know, he likes charcoal barbecues. Oh, yeah. But no, not, I don't tend to. I don't have an Instagram 
fixation. The, the Andy Rashid Instagram yeah. account for yeah. breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> what are we having? Uh, wheat bix, orange juice, <laughs> and coffee. It's much much the same as yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before, and the day before. I'm a creature of habit as well. So, but shooting food's really interesting because I work with this wonderful food stylist, and she's gifted. I didn't even know there was such a thing as oh, a yeah, food yeah, stylist. Yeah, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, cabbage manipulators, you know, yeah, all sorts. <laughs> you, <laughs> specialized, get you get specialised and each down. No, no, no. <laughs> so she'll, she'll set up this incredible dish. Mm. She's done all the heavy lifting. It goes, it gets put in front of me. I have to light it and take photographs of it and then eat it afterwards. But it's this thing where I get the accolade because the photograph's magnificent, but... The, the real heavy lifting was done by somebody else. So I don't know. I've tried to take photographs and I've not done very well. I just can't see the frame in the way somebody who's experienced can. I think it's there's, there's, a, there's an inherent ease, I guess, or flair to be able to balance in two dimensions. And it's a different capability of being balanced in three dimensions. So doing sculpture... Getting a, getting a sculpture that's balanced from all directions, that's a hard-won prize. That's, you know, you can make mm. this face is fantastic and that face is really good and then you get around mm. that side and it's car crash. Mm. You know, so, and I've done lots of them. <laughs> in 2D. No, in 3D. I've, 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 done, I've done, yeah, I've done a bit of um, stone and yeah, right, hebel okay. and I, I work in bone sometimes as well, so I've done yeah, okay. bone carving and things and... That's easier because they tend to be viewed from a single face, so you can yeah, kind of get yeah. away with the back not being yeah. particularly outrageous. But Have you ever tried Scrimshaw? No, not officially. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to do it officially, I think. Well, I need some... I need some... Some whalebone. Some whalebone or oh, yeah, some walrus, walrus tusks. Some tusks, yeah. yeah. How did you get into photography? What's the pathway there? Um, I was... I went to Sydney to be a famous musician. Did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, do you want to drop back into we'll, – we'll get to the photography. Let's go back to going to Sydney to be a famous musician. All right. So um, I started playing music when I was about 16. I found um, a collaborator um, and we just gelled. It was this instant meeting of the minds and it was exponential – in its growth. And what so, sort of music were you playing? Our own. Yeah, right. Just about, yeah, completely devoid of covers. There were a couple of covers in there, but, yeah, more or less stuff that we were writing. So I was playing bongos and Rob was playing guitar. Uh-huh. We were both singing. Yep. Um, there were no rules. So it was no, – you couldn't do anything wrong. There wasn't, any, <laughs> there wasn't a wrong, which meant that the potential for – trialling an idea, rolling it out, nobody laughed at you and went, you did that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like that was either something that we'd want to play again or it wasn't. And, yeah, right. And what ensued over the next few years was we, we, we wrote hundreds of songs. This guy is probably, he, I think by the time we'd finished the rock band, I think he was up to 1,500 songs that he'd written himself. Good God. Like, just extraordinary. And some of them were good. <laughs> well, you'd expect after you know, 1,500 yeah, songs. Yeah. I mean, some of our songs were good. He wrote a lot of good songs. Yeah, right. Is he still playing? Yeah. Yeah, he plays a bit. I think, I mean, he's a handyman now, which is a tragedy. <sighs> it is, yeah. Well, 
It's, yeah. I'm glad I didn't get famous because I think I'd probably be dead. I Why need, is that? Well, I need people to say no to me. <laughs> Die if you have an accident, if you're yeah. young. Yeah. Oh, but just that whole rock and roll indulgence. You'd go there, would you? I wouldn't have probably had a choice. I'm, I'm heavily addictive nature and... Yeah, right. I don't think it would have been... Cigarettes. Good. I smoke cigarettes and... Lots? Uh, I got into it. Anything yeah, I get into, right. I get into, you know. What about beer? No, I didn't. No, I, I drank early on. I drank three beers and went to play my bongo drums and couldn't do anything. It impaired, <laughs> it impaired my physicality and I just went, this is bullshit. That's pretty interesting though, isn't it? Because like your bongo drums take precedence over the, that sensation. We had things to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Alcohol didn't appeal to me until only the last few years. And you really smashed it out. I... <laughs> So, so you have I, one drink a week. No, I, I drink now. I have a, I have a little bit. I quite enjoy it now. I have a yeah. little bit, you yeah. know. But yeah, yeah. Um, now we can talk about anything here. It's yeah, fine. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Herbal pursuits that was expansive and engaging and progressive yeah. and worked really, like really, really worked in your creative pursuits. Yeah, yeah. How's that? How did that work? Um, I could focus. I could. I found a physicality that would just kind of. Work, yeah, not right. every time, but sometimes. What about your family? How um, did they sort of react? Because you know, if you're going to smoke a lot of weed, um, you, look, depends on who it is, but you don't tend to be so social when you're stoned. Oh, I'm a bit odd. I was a bit odd in that in that regard. Yeah, fully, yeah, fully could, capable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was really, it was just expansive, and it worked, and. I had tons of ideas. Yeah, Like, right. I've never really been short of ideas. Mm. And so what ended up happening was we ended up creating this whole culture with our friends that was hinged around us playing music. Mm. And we'd go and sit in the bush and, and jam and have picnics and hang out and, you know, it was just... It, that was the cultural norm was that we were dedicated in trying to be the best people that we could be. We were, you know, critiquing each other's behaviour in a way that was progressive. Yeah, it right. was really good. It was, there was lots of it that was really, really good. Yeah, right. And we are all flawed, but, you know, we were, we were kids. And then... Except you know everything. Yeah, when, well, you're, when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, just ask me, I'll tell you. Yeah. So that band became... A, uh, that duo became a band yeah. in the late 80s I bought a drum kit started playing drum kit and we hooked up with a couple of brothers who were playing guitar so um, Rob who I'd been playing music with played bass yep. I went on to drum kit and um, uh, Pete and Paul Paul played rhythm Pete played uh, lead we were all learning basically we all kind of start, had to start again because we all took on different roles mm. um, sounds very punk I'm not saying you played yeah, punk. No, no, it wasn't. It, it was DIY in its yeah. ethos, but yeah. it was um, – they were good songs. We wrote some good songs. Have you, have you got recordings? Uh, somewhere. There's, yeah, there's a little bit of proof. <laughs> I've got a record. We made an album in 1987 or something. Would you be able to give me a listen to that? I'll give you a copy of it, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've got 37 of these. <laughs> 37 and a half. You can have two copies, Adrian. Mm. Um, what do you do with them? They're under the bed still. No, You've probably no, got 37 boxes. Well, no, I, I culled. Eventually you cull. 
so then we decided to move to Sydney to further to further that the career that career yeah because and in Sydney there's oh it's going to be so much better yeah yeah clearly do you know the the definition of an expert is somebody from interstate yeah <laughs> of course you couldn't nobody's and if you're here. interstate the definition yeah. of an expert is something from overseas yeah 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 so the next stop is LA yeah, yeah right. Anyway, so you go to you, so, <laughs> you, you get in the U. So we moved to Sydney. Everyone's in the back of the station wagon, oh, not the U. Yeah, no, I had Wilma the Wed Wagon, my trusty ex-wife, Falcon. <laughs> she was, she was one of the great loves of my life. <laughs> you get in the panel van, you traipse off to Sydney. Traipse off to Sydney. Um, Realise how expensive it is to live there. Uh huh. Rent. Shitholes. From what about getting gigs? Did you do all right doing that? We we played a party and two open mic nights, and we were on the bill for a gig with five other bands, and that was the only gigs that we did. So we basically played to oh, about fifteen people. Yeah, right. You know, oh, it was a few more than that, but we were rehearsing forty hours a week. Oh, really? We were dedicated to the to this good guy this idea. So we moved out to Glenorie which is um, probably in the heart of the suburbs now, but it was on the yeah. very edge of town of Sydney. Because yeah. the um, rent's cheap. You can actually... Yeah. Cheaper rent, big property. Yeah. We rented this 10-room farmhouse with a massive Besser block shed and built a um, carpeted rehearsal studio yep. out there. And we'd be out there by nine in the morning, play through the morning tea, go and have a break, back out to lunch, back out there until 4.30 or 5 o'clock, get up, rinse, repeat... You guys would have been rocking. Well, it's funny. Because of the pressure of trying to get to be a world-class band yeah. and the fact that we hadn't... I couldn't count at that point as a drummer. Mm. I hadn't learned to count. Yeah. And there were all of these deficits. We weren't trained. So this is where there's this, this point where sometimes you actually need guidance. There's a point at which... The beginner's luck isn't so lucky anymore. Mm. You've actually got to learn the You've skills. You've got to learn the skills. And, mm. and I had this, uh, what would you call it, had this expectation that if I did get technically trained, my creativity was going to evaporate. Like you couldn't do both, which was yeah, nonsense. Really. It was this prejudice. It was ridiculous. Mm. But anyway, so yeah. we practised too much. Didn't play enough gigs. Yeah. And that band imploded eventually. Yeah. Creative differences. Just personalities. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it wasn't going anywhere. And no, it you just get frustrated. Work. just didn't work. And at around the time that band was folding. And so um, my dad had gifted me this 1962 Pentax with a light meter that sat on top of it and a bellows okay. and a 50mm lens. That was the kit. Yep. Which was great because it was macro. Is this like when you are in Sydney or is the, it? Just before, yeah, around that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, okay. And... Yeah. He didn't give me any instruction, which was he said, "Oh, you can't you do Here this." Here you go, you trying out DIY, <laughs> learning on your feet. And so <laughs> I tried to get. I had a few, few goes, and really enjoyed the process. And then yeah. I'd take the film out, and I'd either have the film on one side and the canister on the other, or like yeah. I just didn't know how to load a film properly. And no. in the end, I took it to um to the camera shop, the local camera shop, and went, "This camera's broken." And the guy looked and went. No, this is fine. He said, how are you loading You're your broken. film? Yeah. And he showed me how to load film and gave me, you know, yeah. a five-minute lesson. And that first roll of film had three or four shots that were just... Yeah, wow. ..just beautiful. They weren't refined, but mm. there was this proof of 
my belief that I was going to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. And it was enough to really just I I was addicted. Yeah, right. Immediately, it was this. From that point, I was shooting a roll of film a week. That's I didn't not have any very money. much, but it is. Oh, only compared if you to don't yeah, have money, yeah, you know, if you had no money, dollar a frame, mm. you know, that was like. Yeah, me, right. you know, like cost processing. It was it was expensive. expensive it was yeah. expensive, but yeah. I was documenting my whole life from that point. I, I was just engaged. I was completely engaged, and I was fixated, and I was identifying with this process mm. as being really important to me, like really important. As you were trying to be the rock and roll superstars. Well, no, that so the band the band had folded. Yeah, and you were looking for point, something else. And I ended up working in a nursery mm-hmm. and living out at Webb's Creek, which was on the Hawkesbury. So I ended up in yeah, right. God's country. It was just yeah. beautiful. Like, you know, I saw a lyre bird running down the road one day. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the property backed onto um, this belt of national park that ran through the Blue Mountains. Yeah. And out the front in the 50s, it had been a turf farm. It was this big floodplain. And so it was about a kilometre to the cliff face and then there was the river and, you know, that, that would flood periodically as well. So I got flooded in once and it was just, oh, stunning. Just such a stunning place to be and observe and mm. take photos in. Mm. And I came back to Adelaide eventually because there wasn't much holding me in Sydney. Uh, and funnily enough, as I was driving my loaded car onto the, the ferry to come home... I got offered a job driving the ferry. So I could have been employed had I stayed... Had you I, were joking. No, so had I chose the next day to leave, I would have been offered a job and probably would have stayed. Yeah. Because I was in love with this girl there. Oh. And she wasn't going to fall in love with me. Oh. <laughs> it's all right. I'm okay. <laughs> God, there's so, forks in the road, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. Came back to yeah. Adelaide. on. The, I think I got back on the Thursday. I was playing a gig on the Saturday. A solo gig? No, 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 with a mate of mine, he was a guitar maker, um, bazooki maker, um, Dimitri. Yep. I'd played music with him, so that's another, that's a bit of another story, a previous fork in the road that we'll get to because that's important. So, yeah, I landed, landed back in, hit the ground running. There was just shit going on immediately. Wow. So I was, I got back here and there was all this affirmation, yeah, you're in the, you made the right decision. Wow. Come back to Adelaide. Do you still think that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I belong in Wisto. This is, yeah, right. Is yeah. this where you grew up in Wistow? No, no, no. I grew up in the foothills, Ross Trevor. Yeah, okay. Um, and my mum's still in that house. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm an Adelaide boy. I think it's one of those yeah. things. It just makes sense to me as a place to live. Yeah, Adelaide's got some real benefits. Yeah. Its sole disadvantage is just its isolation. Mm. And you could look at that as a, an advantage. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I really do. I mean, there's, it's probably getting less problematic as the internet means that you can actually sell to the world. Not that I've actually achieved that yet, but... Mm. I still think you need to know people and... Like, if you wanted to be a musician today, going to Sydney or Melbourne be a waste of time. You have to go to LA, Tokyo or London. Maybe. Maybe Paris. No, I think definitely. Like, if you wanted to do it... Yeah, it's, it's, I, it's such, a difficult, such a difficult road. I think any creative pursuit's a difficult road. Mm. You've got to want to do it. You've got to have a bit of flair or you've got to be really, really lucky. There's an idea that you just can't do anything else. There's just no other options. That's, yeah, it's a nice, nicely put because like once I got into photography, I, just, where you were. Oh, I was just like, man, okay, I don't have to rely on anyone else. 
Yeah. I can do this by myself. Yeah, right. I was immediately dreaming of the progression of how that might look and how I could make it. So what was interesting, I remember standing on the balcony at Webb's Creek all of 22 or something, and I had this moment where I'm going, right, I'm not going to do 60-hour weeks. I'm not going to work for people that I don't like. And just sort of laid out some ground rules about what I was prepared to do and not prepared to do in my life. And, and I think I also threw out this idea of the projection of a feeling. So what, what would it feel like to be realised in this vision? And I think that's a, it was a really beautiful thing to do because I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew what it was going to feel like. And I had a bit of a midlife crisis when I was in the last house, so that would have been probably 15 years ago, 12, 12 years ago. And when I came around and actually looked at what was in front of me, it didn't look like a, my life didn't look like I thought it was going to look, but it was fulfilling all of those things that were relevant to that feeling. So really stable relationship, kids, autonomy, huge creative freedom. You know, I wasn't a rich dude, but I'd made different choices. I'd made choices around family that weren't going to facilitate being super rich. There's a, there's a trade, unless always, you're lucky. always a compromise, isn't yeah. there? But what's the word rich mean? Oh, look, it's, and if you can uh, afford to do creative pursuits, yeah, you're, yeah. you're as rich as you need to be. Oh, man, it, it's so much more about how do you feel when you get up? How, yeah. What's your dialogue, internal dialogue like, mm. you know? And if, like I gauge my success by my internal relationship, how happy am I with my lot? And I feel insanely successful, mm. insanely successful. There are periods where you don't feel like that, hey. Yeah, but even yeah, like it's I a mean, roller coaster. It it is a roller coaster, but it's that thing where, like, I've just been through the the demise of my father and and then his death, and even when I was getting squished and I got squished, man, it was I I got broken actually for a while. There it was yeah, right. about as shit as it could feel, and retrospectively, I look at it and go, oh man, I had about a dozen people that really understood me who were able to give me critique and rationale. I had still had, like, my initial impulse was, here's a handful of lessons that I need to, to address before I can move on. And then the support of my family to be able to pursue the learning of those lessons, even though I wasn't being particularly functional externally, like, I couldn't do much because it was too hard. I was, you know, my dad had been... It's this thing that I had thought about I'd like to explain where uh, my dad had Alzheimer's and every time the person that you know can't facilitate something that they would normally be able to do with ease, they get wounded and you get wounded. And Mm. it's this progression of everyone becoming more and more wounded but they're still there and they're still looking at you and they'll still smile at you sometimes and you've still got their voice. It's not, it's this, there's a term for it, I, don't, I can't remember what it is, but it's this grief that is, that just grows. Compound grief, we'll call mm. it, you know, that you just keep getting another hit of it and another hit of it. And by, you know, we were nine years in of his illness before he yeah. went, we were damaged. It was really. So you, you reckon, like, if he'd died early, or died of a heart attack or something like that that would have been easier? Yeah, but I, I wondered before, just about three months before he died, I'm going, why are we getting pummeled like this? What's this about? 
mm. you know. Well, I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't foresee that there was any possible lesson. And what unfolded in that last bit was a recognition that I needed to go back and look at my childhood, which I'd compartmentalised completely, put it away, wasn't interested in looking at it. I'd got to the life that I wanted to live, so therefore none of that stuff was important. God, that's it. So the wife comes and taps you on the shoulder yeah, and says, goes, hey, wait yeah, up. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. No, you actually, you do have to look at this. And that was... Yeah, okay. That was... Really confronting, but Did really necessary. Did you get necessary. on with your dad? Yeah, in the end, yeah. I mean, he was. I got on. Yes, but he was. He was very quiet, and he was very, quite closed emotionally. And so I'm. I mean, I'm an emotional, open book. That's, that's my gig. I can sit next to a stranger in a plane, and by the time we get off the plane, I'm giving him a hug. And I reckon you know. most uh, musicians would be like that. I think musicians. I think it comes with the territory. With some, I, I have met some. I've, I've met all sorts of people. Yeah, but if you're going to play with people successfully, yeah, again and again and again, the people that get invited back to yeah. keep playing, yeah, or the people you end up being the, really close friends with, yeah, are yeah. the people that just get on with people, yeah, turn the other cheek when yeah. things go shitty. I mean, yeah, okay, you can get shitty with people because you're in the van all the time or whatever, but. Mm. I think musicians are team players and the ones that aren't, they're either solo mm. or they just don't play anymore. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's a funny thing. It, it is a particular, I don't want to completely generalise, but yeah. No, there's, there's a I lot did, of, but that's I've, okay. I've, met, I've met some of my closest friends. I mean, my partner, we met through playing music. Yeah, right. You know, played in yeah. bands together and, yeah, were friends long before we got together. Uh-huh. So... Yeah. So I, I guess I was friends with my dad when I was a kid, but it was harder for me because we were so different. And um, he was, he engaged with me more as I got older. So by the time. Because he was mellowing. Oh, we were all learning. You yeah, know? yeah. I was pretty messy when I was a kid. I was. I, messy in what way? Uh, You're not talking like. Chucking your clothes on the floor, I don't think, are you? Oh, I was messy, messy. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. proper, I was proper, like, yeah. untidy messy. Yeah, that's only, I've only resolved that recently. Mm. It's this thing, so I'm driven by creativity. Mm. I'm driven by it. Everything that I do is hinged around being creative and developing an idea or, you know, making or playing or it's really, I don't really own anything but tools. I own tools to make things and own tools that are musical instruments mm. and... Tools that take photographs. Yeah, and tools that take photographs. So I really don't own very much else. And as a kid, I had no proof of that. So I'm driven by all the same motivations, but I didn't have any of the output. So I had no proof. And so I was just confused and messy. And it was really... Um, like I failed tech studies. I, That's... Um, yeah. You yeah. know? So did I. <laughs> How weird yeah. is that? Well, I think it's kind of normal almost on some level. It's this... I just think there's times and places. Yeah. But by the time my dad and I had an adult relationship, he was really chuffed with the decisions that I'd made in my life. He was really yeah. proud of what I'd achieved. Yeah. Loved that we'd bought a, a property and out in a sort of rural, semi-rural place. And, yeah. and he'd, he loved music. He loved photography he loved art he loved cars what did he do he was a mechanic yeah yeah and he was really he was a really good mechanic yeah um, when he was younger and then ended up being sales manager and 
stuff for Freeman Motors and Coventry Motors and Australian Motors, and then ended up um, buying panel panel bedding shops. Uh-huh. So, and I went, I spent, hung out there a lot, spent a lot of time. So you can fix dents in cars. Well, I learned how to sculpt. Okay. I learned how to sculpt there because I could, I could shape panels, and mm. I'm pretty shitty as a panel beater. Like I'm really rudimentary, but the lessons are: you want a flat surface, you go this way, this way, mm. and this way, and then you go across that, and then you go across mm. that again with a big flat surface, mm. and that'll give you a flat area. If you want a curve, you, you mm. know, you roll your you um, flat thing and you go this way and that way mm. you know it's five minutes of tuition and you can learn how to sculpt really mm. you can make curves and you can make flat areas and then the rest of it's just the 30 years you need to find balance when you make something it's a bit like the harmonica you blow in it and you suck on it <laughs> off you go <laughs> you know simple yeah so yeah. and I learned how to do terrible welding but I did a bit of I did a bit of um, metal fabrication, and it was the beginning of this uh, these things that fire me, you know, fire me up. Where, like, I've done a bit of painting, like I'll make my own tail mm. pieces out of brass. Mm. So YouTube, I watched a video of a guy making a copper beaker, mm. and it was there was all the fundamentals. You want it to curve, you go to this. You want to make something round, you do this. You want to make it flat, you do this. And I'd really like to pursue metalwork. I think it's really, it's a really interesting medium. It's like sort of slow plasticine where you can, you push the material that way and you push it this way and you've got to be careful about how you bend it, otherwise you'll break it and those sorts of things. I'm, I just, I just love skill sets. How do you, how do you attain another skill set so that you can pursue that thing or that thing? So like bone carving is sculpture in miniature and I've just started making some jewellery out of cedar. Recently I made a couple of pieces for Bindi, Mother's Day and, and her birthday the other day. I really enjoyed it. And I'm not using carving tools, I'm using sandpaper. So, I'll, you know, I'll make, cut my shape out on the bandsaw, linish it up, get it close and then mm. sand it down to finish it. Yeah. So there's, there's all these different areas and I'd really love to do jewellery properly, like actually silversmithery and yeah, if that's right. the word, smithery. Yeah. Yeah. So um, It is now. Yeah. <laughs> this is my cousin, smithery. <laughs> Come here, smithery. Okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a, an aside here. We'll get away from the creativity bit. What I want you to tell us is your top three musical influences. Oh, Rob Cowper, the, the guy I was in the duo with, mm-hmm. he would have to be number one. Except we can't hear Rob Cowper. Can well, we? Uh, well, I wonder if we can. I don't know. He's done bits of recording. Mm. They would probably be people rather than famous bands mm. because of uh, so. That's okay. Let's. Yeah. So so Rob Cowper because of what he created within me, which was the freedom to pursue unformed music or formed yeah. music, it, it, the the ruleless nature. Yeah. You know, um, the anarchy of it all was really wonderful. And so I went on to write 70 or 80 of my own songs, playing regular guitar and singing. And um, now I don't play fretted guitar and I can't remember any of my songs at all. I remember melodies, <laughs> but they're all gone. <laughs> and that, that's something that's kind of interesting, the transient nature. 
It's one of the wonderful things about music, I think. Oh, it's it here, sucks too. And then it's not. Oh, it's so sad. It's like yeah. you've got this relationship with these songs that you've invested, you know, like you, if, by the time you've rehearsed a song and gone through the recording process and then the mixing process and then the mastering process, you've invested 100 hours in a song and then you don't get to play that song again. It's gone. Mm. And that can be a bit sad. I mean, it is yeah, what it but, is. But... I think music is fantastic in the same way making something is fantastic mm. because you can get lost in it. Yeah, yeah, it is about the process. And you, I, I have to remember that. I've made a lot of sculpture and got to the last 10 minutes of the process going, yeah, this is almost finished, and then cracked them in half. I've done that with Hebel. I've done that over and over with oh, Hebel. It, it's you an know. accident. Yeah. yeah. Just go, oh, oh, well. <laughs> Can't have a coffee. We had a good time. Yeah. That's what matters. Yeah. Um, Dimitri was really influential. Dimitri Delahorgo, um, he was really influential to me because he's about 10 years older than me, and I met him when he was making his first classical guitar, and that was this light bulb moment, walking out into his back room and seeing this instrument in bits on the on the table, and it was like, oh my god, I need to I need to make, I need to do this. It was yeah, really right. powerful. Are you a teenager at this point? Uh, 18 mm. or 19. And then that same night was the first time I'd played on a drum kit with anybody. So I'd been hand percussionist and he had a drum kit set up and he went, go on, have a hit. I went to, like years and years ago, I went to his place in Hindmarsh, mm. a little shop that he had. Yeah. And there were like jam nights and you could just rock up and there was, you just have a go. Mm. It was on. Was that, is that one of those nights? Well, he was he was playing with um, a bass player called Bomber. I think Bomber's real name's John. <laughs> of course. I never asked. John Smith. <laughs> John Smith. No, he's Greek. <laughs> he's Greek. Um, big mop of curly hair, lovely guy. And um, I walked into this space and there's like the holy grail of instruments everywhere. If he still had those instruments, he'd be rich dude. There were mm. Stratocasters, Jaguars, mm. um, Bomber was playing a Rickenbacker, like, mm. and then the amplifiers, just gorgeous, gorgeous amplifiers everywhere. And we played so loud that I couldn't hear the drum kit. <laughs> and I was hooked. It was just like, this is, this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, and visceral. Real 70s, like that, he's the real deal. He's yeah. that real 70s player, yeah. you know, Stone of Rock. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And he introduced me to Black Sabbath, King Crimson, Hawkwind, yeah. Zappa, although I got into Zappa later. Oh, um, Tommy Bolan. There were a whole lot of things that he turned me on to that I just wouldn't have found that he assumed that I Is would know. Is this Dimitri or John? Yeah, Dimitri. Yeah, Dimitri, yeah. So that was, that was that progression. And then those, the influence of those bands. So as a teenager, I was initially heavily into Bowie and then Midnight Oil and and then got into more of the prog stuff, yes, and... King Crimson and and the development of that and then the broadening over the years. So now I listen to, like, I love the Punch Brothers. If you haven't heard the Punch Brothers, mm. go and look up one of their live gigs. Mm. They are insane. Yeah, just I saw incredible. Them maybe 10 years ago. Or so. yeah, yeah, the virtuosity is just. Yeah, it's nuts. It's outrageous. <laughs> and the, you know, watching someone that has no limitation with rhythm or melody. It's, yeah, it's it's humbling. <laughs> um, and I've been Indeed. listening to Snarky Puppy. 
Yeah, right. A lot of snake um, puppy lately. Letary. What's his first name? John Letary, I think. Oh, Mark? Mark Letary, yeah. Yeah. And um, Funk. Oh, man. But, but so deep. Like, there's so much depth. It's um, the yeah. complexity with melodies that you can still hum along to. Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's, it's this bizarre mix. Wonderful, wonderful yeah. music. I watched this thing the other day, Lionel Lewis, the, the drummer, learnt the songs that he was going to play on the recording, on the flight to the gig. <laughs> yeah. And you watch what he's playing and you just go, Yeah. Wow, yeah. like one take. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Look, so, that's a dude that knows how to play and oh. he's practised doing exactly that. Be, I wonder, he's probably like super nervous about it too at the time. But, I don't know. I don't oh, know. No, I don't think realize. so. No, yeah. You're watching him. I think he is, he is so adept yeah. at, at his craft. Yeah. Like he doesn't have to worry about being in time because that's just in him. That's yeah. innate. That's clear. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's done thousands of hours of practice. You don't get to an elite level yeah. without doing your practice. And playing with lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah. Different different types. Different types yeah. of music. But the skill set, like imagine, mm. it's like an elite athlete mm. where you, you watch them do a complex physical manoeuvre and they could probably, you know, sing a song while they're doing it and talk to you about philosophy. Like it's the, the physicality is just taking over and there's, I don't know, yeah, incredible skill set. Yeah, the... The yeah. mind can switch off and multitask. Mm. Mm. But then there's this complete awareness of where he is in the song and what he has to do next and what changes are coming in. Yeah. Mm. And it's something it's, it's some, I can listen, but I don't have that. Like I find it really amusing assessing my musicality sometimes where I'll get to the end of the bar and be surprised that the, ne- that the bar is going to start again. And the, <laughs> the, <laughs> this is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can be, especially with, with slide or pedal or something, slide guitar or pedal guitar for the folks at home, getting to the end of the progression and being so caught up in the progression that I forget that I need to be ready to start the progression again, if that makes sense. I don't know. There's some bizarre things that happen inside my head. Embrace those bizarre I, I, things. Well, they, yeah. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> What's the first band you ever saw live? Um, that's a good question. We, I went and stood outside Midnight Oil. Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know what the first band... I saw a band when I was six in a hotel that we were staying at in Mount Gambia. And the I, Angels. You yeah, saw the Angels. I saw the Angels. <laughs> and they were playing on a bill with cold chisel. Um, and I don't mm. know what the band was, but I walked in and just went, don't like the guy's hi-hat sound. Uh-huh. I was six years old. Yeah, right. Didn't even know that I was a musician. Yeah. He probably didn't even know that he had a hi-hat sound to like or dislike. No. It was probably just something he hit. But I just walked in and went, no, I don't like his hats. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first band I saw probably, and I was mm. opinionated already. Yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, let's get back into photograph land. So you'd been a professional photographer a long time, photographing people. All, all sorts of things. So 23-year career in Adelaide, pretty marginal audience on lots of levels, so I have to be a generalist, um, which suits me beautifully because I don't really differentiate between subject matter. There's this goal that most of the time I'm rocking up sight unseen to a situation and there's a great photograph there, I need to find it. Yeah, so right. what is it? What's yeah. it going to be? Is it going to be obvious? Is it going to be an idea that I might have had? Have I had some kind of intuition about what that might, shot might look like? 
Mm. And that's happened before where I've gone, I've been driving there going, I'm going to do this, this and this, and I arrive and I've got this ability to be able to facilitate the vision of what I've had. Um, and more often than not, it's a bit of a struggle trying to find just the right setup. But there's always something that you can make of a situation. I'm trying to think of a good example, um, rolling up to get a corporate level image of this group of underprivileged kids um, down south having barbecued snags and stuff. And I ended up, I think I lay on the ground and I got them to kick or mark a football above me because that was one of the activities they were doing. So I ended up with this dynamic shot that eliminated the ugly background, put these kids in this, you know, powerful composition. Then with text, the rest of that story got told. So, and sometimes it's just a disaster and you kind of scratch your head going, what do I do here? There was, <laughs> I had to get a, a shot for a, what are they called? Um, like a report, corporate. Annual report. Annual report um, for United Water back in the day. And they sent me down to photograph this a water filtration plant at Christie's Beach. And I got there and there was a shitty cyclone fence around a concrete drain. Beautiful. Let's make a dynamic photograph. And I just went, oh my God, I'm ruined. <laughs> and I was... I thought, what can I do? And there was a, a small header tank with a box on the side of it, some kind of pump regulator or something. So I got a guy to stand in a white lab coat. With, with a clipboard. With a clipboard, standing yeah. there looking at this thing. The sun was directly behind him, so I, I included the sun in the shot. And then I walked 500 metres further away into the flight path and photographed a plane going through the sun and then dropped that into this photograph and it ended up being this really dynamic yeah. shooting straight into the sun playing in the shot yeah. you know the man in the clipboard it was how did you strong. go about getting your clients i ring them up cold pretty much so i've done a lot of that yeah ringing people up assessing their work first so you, they're either users of commercial photography already or they are they're not and if they're not it's quite obvious and you can kind of word it going look i think we could create a more dynamic advertising message for your business through this angle, you know, and try and present something that they could actually envisage for their business. Yeah, it's hard graph. It's really... Yeah. Is there a lot of competition? Yeah, some really good shooters in this yeah. town. There's some really good photographers. And it's that thing, you're not just competing with Adelaide anymore. There's Everybody's got exposure to really great photography all day. So it's really... It's becoming more and more Via marginal. The phone. Yeah. 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 You had a really interesting project that ran for a long time going all around the country. Yeah. And international too. Yeah. Tell us about that. I'm international. I'm an international <laughs> photographer. Mm. I landed a job with Rabobank. I'd worked with the woman that ended up being the head of Rabo and she had in a previous existence been in local council and we'd done amazing work together so it seemed that every time we do something together it would be better than anything that we could have done separately uh-huh. it just worked and she's really team once really, again yeah decent mm. decent lady just tell us what Rabobank is first so Rabobank is a uh, what's the word uh, starts with a C cooperative so they started in Holland I think with a whole lot of farmers yep helping each other out yep and that's where it started and as far as banks go it's an go, agricultural bank yeah yep. yeah well, they're not agricultural in their output, but that's no. what they deal with. Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of wholesome as far as banks go in that they invest an enormous amount back into the sector. So there's heaps of education. I mean, they're still a bank, but, you know, they're, mm. they're 
they were a great organisation and really good to deal with. And so I went basically up and down the East Coast um, over to Western Australia and spent two weeks in Western Australia, lots of stuff in South Australia, um, went to the Northern Territory, far north Queensland, and then did um, all of New Zealand over February a couple of years ago. And just just fantastic. It's this idea that you're walking in to meet people that are farmers. They're not really, you know, they're not that up for being photographed, but they were the right people. Like, they'd handpicked the people that they were putting in front of me most of the time. And I just had some just fantastic experiences. It was really was really hard work and travelling I'm not very good sleeping in beds that aren't my bed so I'd be absolutely knackered by the end of it mm. but yeah it was a good gig it was a really good gig and it facilitated a lot of potential after that so one of the things that happened was for the first time in my career I'd have money from doing work and then I'd have space and then I would also have the promise of more work yeah and that from a freelance point of view, yeah, is that's, just liberates. That's just extraordinary. Yeah. That's like, you know, chocolate topping on your ice cream. It's yeah. incredible. That facilitated a lot of instrument making because uh-huh. I had space. How did you start making instruments? I tried initially. So saw Dimitri's classical guitar yeah. and lost my mind and went, I'm going to make a percussion instrument and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put a, like a chamber on it for the sound. I had no idea what that was going to do or how it was going to work. And so I started cutting this bowl out of gelatin, I think, because it was soft and I was going to mount that somehow behind a bongo drum or something. I don't even know what I was going to do. That piece of wood may have become firewood. wasn't much good for anything else. So that didn't work. And then years later, maybe 15 years ago, I decided I was going to build a lap steel guitar and Can, why? Because they're simple. They're a piece of wood. You're obviously playing lap steel. Why didn't you just go and buy a lap steel guitar? I had one. There was no joy in that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because I have one already. You know, like we can go to the secondhand furniture shop if you haven't got any money, or mm. you can go and say, "I'm just talking about furniture." Or, for instance, you can go to Kmart and buy yourself a set of cutlery. You could even buy jewelry there, probably. Why would you? Why would anyone want to go and make something? I I think it was that I, I was fired up. I I'd felt right from that moment as a seventeen year old, eighteen year old. I'm going to do this. This mm. is this is actually something that's really important to me. Making things. Yeah, but making instruments in particular just felt yeah. there was this real pull. And so I did tons of research, played lots of different instruments, came to these conclusions about why they were good and why they weren't good. Uh, I'd had lots of exposure to different luthiers by the time I actually made this. So funnily enough... How did you manage to do that? Because they're pretty rare breed. I, I know about five of them. Well, I mean, I was photographing folk festivals. I'd always go and talk to the luthiers at the folk yeah, festivals. Right. Um, and Dimitri friends was probably... Group. Dimitri, yeah. um, Jimmy was in a friends group that I was, I was in and... Mm. Um, Tim Wright is another one. Um, he's a mate of mine. Steve Salvey. I ended up, I, I sought out Brian DeGrucci and spoke to him a, a handful of times. Mm. I'm sad that I can't speak to him anymore. I'd really love to show mm. him what I've just done and yeah, right. pick his brains about that. But he gave me some really pivotal foundational information. That Yeah, that was an interesting connection there. That was He was great. But I, I picked off 
a lap steel, electric lap steel, because it's basically a piece of wood. Mm. And if you you put, you don't have to make a fretboard. You can just put yeah. markers. Yeah. And if you get the distance between, you know, of your scale length right, and you put your frets in the right position, you almost can't go wrong. Yeah. I mean, this could get loud. Is that the documentary? Yeah. And and Jack White makes a yeah. a rudimentary lap steel in yeah, the first three minutes of the show. Post. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's that's that. It's that easy, and I decided because my attention to detail is almost like a condition, it's, it can be an issue. So when I used to draw, before I was right into photography, I'd, I used to draw quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I'd spend 30 hours or 40 hours on a, an A3 piece of paper. Yeah, right. Like the detail was ridiculous. Some abstract level of, of skill there, I'm not a photorealist, but I could draw. Like I've yeah. inherited this the skill set. The thing about drawing is you learn to look, and you'd need to learn to look before you start photographing yeah. in any sort of well. And capacity. that was that's I, I run an exercise which is about that where I, when I'm teaching in the first first class, I'll sit people down with a piece of paper and I'll say, "We're going to draw this mug. Uh-huh. Draw the mug as you see it." And they draw the mug. And most people will complain, I'm not, I'm not good at drawing. I'm going, this isn't about your ability to draw. No. This is just Learning draw the mug. look, yeah. And then I say, okay, now this is a unique, it's, it's a un- unique <laughs> um, object of much virtue that has come from another land, you know. Now look at it. What's the shape inside the handle? What is, what's that shape look like? Where's the light falling on this? How does, how does this sit in relationship to you like just focus on every aspect of mm. of this unique ceramic object that you've never witnessed before the second drawing without fail is incredibly superior to the first mm. in every every instant it's never failed because it's this idea that they're actually paying attention mm. and i think that was one of those things so i had some flair in mm. photography when i started but i was five years in as a professional before i really understood how to look yeah it takes, you know, when you yeah. when you get into that flow where you're going, boom, there we are. There's the there's the image. Yeah, the famous ten thousand hours. What's famous now? Yeah, wasn't back then. Yeah, I'm up to about forty five thousand now. Oh yeah, I think so. Twenty three years, something like that. So I picked off this really simple instrument, and I made it as pretty as it could be, or pretty as I could make it, so that if it failed sonically, I could hang it on the wall. Could be sculpture. <laughs> Good one. Yeah, um, and I was lucky in that I got a resonant piece of material. It's a piece of cedar, uh-huh. which uh, from America or from no, Australia? No, uh, uh, New Guinea, I think. It's okay. a, like a fast-growing yep. material, yep. and I don't know whether it was the best choice, but it don't works. Know. Yeah, um, I made a big fuck-off piece of brass um, bridge. For it, so it's got good retention and or sustain, sustain, yeah. brass and bone for the bridge, brass and bone for the for the um, nut, uh, purple heart fretboard yeah. with maple frets. Cut. Uh, my friend had, a, <laughs> friend had a milling machine, so I did yeah, these right. these frets positions that are um, accurate to one one thousandth of a, sec- a centimeter or something. Yeah, or a yeah, millimeter. Right, wow. And it worked. And it was like, oh. It's flawed. It's not a perfect instrument. It's, a, it's like a, the scale length's probably baritone. It's got this really deep voice, but it uh-huh. growls. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got a, a, a friend of mine had a Seymour Duncan, what was it? I can't remember the name of it, this gutsy high-gain uh, high pickup 
that he'd gifted me. And that was the beginning, really. And then Brian DeGrucci offered me one of his Dobros that had had a, an issue with the finish, and he offered it to me really cheap. Yeah, okay. I, took, I think I took the lap steel to show him, and he said, oh, you could, you know, you could have this for, I can't remember what it was, but it was a ridiculous price. I should have bought it regardless. Yeah. And I didn't have the money to do it, young family. It's that thing, how do you, if you're just noodling, how do you justify spending thousands of dollars on an instrument? Yeah, well, you probably could, but your wife may not agree. Well, I mean, she's a musician as well. She gets it. Yeah, okay. But it's, that, it's still that. Yeah. If you haven't got the money, you haven't got the money. Yeah, well, yeah. But then I needed a Dobro. I didn't know I needed one before, but I <laughs> fucking needed one <laughs> afterwards. And so I drew up this, I drew up this acoustic shape, and, and this is where it kind of starts, where I, I've got this, for some reason, there's this deep-seated need to look away from the tradition of what's come before and I don't know where this comes from and it's not did you do that with photography too probably and I think I do it with everything yeah. yeah I think I do it with everything where I've got to find my own way that makes sense so you don't want to go and get trained before you start because that would set you up with a whole set of paradigms that you would well there's a, there's the thing is there's truth in training there's a truth there that's repeatable. So if I'd gone and learnt the recipe to build a Dobro and I'd put lots of time into it and made five or six iterations, I'd be a fucking good traditional builder because there's a recipe. So you, you build the first one, you work out what you can't do, you build the second one, you refine some of the design elements, you refine some of the... You, you learn the, the craft, you know, you put in the, the, the due diligence and you get to a result. That's, that's a given, if you, if you can find the right tuition, that is. I think that that's a given. It's like most, most crafts, and I can't do it. I don't know what it is, but I can't, I, I've got this, there's this voice in the back of my head going, yeah, that works. What else is there? How, mm. else, how else could we approach this? What aren't they seeing, these people that know all these things, that produce these things at work, that are perfect examples of mm. the thing that you want to make mm. what aren't they seeing and it's not shunning the reality of their learning but it's trying to push is there is there another way and i've had this i guess i've had this thing with traditional building where i look at it and i just go okay if we had if we look at the airplane this is my example that i'd pull out so the airplane started made of material and bits of wood and it did this you know specific little jump in the air that was enough to clarify it. Yeah, it flew. Yeah, it flew. And then materials gradually got better. And as the materials got better, that design evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved until now we go into space in these things, what fly in the air. And I look at a traditional guitar and it's an empty box. And it's an empty box that works beautifully, that facilitates... This resonance, it facilitates this level of ergonomics, it facilitates this tonal response, but it hasn't really changed because it's locked into either design that hinges around solid materials or the materials themselves. And so now there may be a, an imperative to make instruments that look like guitars so that they sell, and I get that, if you're looking at it to try and make a, a viable business, but I've kind of been looking and going, if... if if someone came in and today and said, here's your brief, we've got a scale length of, you know, 638 mil, 
and it's going to have six strings and it needs to project to this volume, it needs to have this level of tonal response, it needs to be ergonomic. I wonder what that instrument would look like today if you go and if, if no one had... If you hadn't seen... If you hadn't seen and you didn't know what had come, mm. how would that look? And so I made um, a Cantar, which is a, a an old 1960s shell can, oil can, and I put a plywood, a layered 19mm ply, um, three layers thick, and it's the you know it's probably 35mm wide fretboard. I stacked the layers of this 19mm ply, so the bottom layers were thicker, and the top layer, um, well, the width of it, was quite thin, so it was only like 15mm um, thick, so I could put tuners through it. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this thin layer and the fact that I was able to build this beautiful curve into that structure by removing material from the underside of the, the bottom layers. And I went, that's it. That's the, the potential to be able to build in three dimensions with sheet material. I could, I could cut out basically like an oval shape that I'd cut most of the guts of it out and then layer them up. So I've got a solid top and then I've got this opening, this acoustic chamber that's created from 19mm ply. What was the... in 19mm ply because it's a new material to investigate or...? No, because I had some left over from the, the two <laughs> sheets I got for 50 bucks from Australian Timbers. That's what I had. Yeah. And I looked at it and went, that'll do. That's good enough. It strikes me that there's a real Australian quality to that idea of material usage. There's... Um, a thing in Australia, there might be a thing in other countries too, but there's this thing in Australia of depression furniture, which back in the 1930s, people made chests of drawers out of old oil cans and well, the lobster cotton crates reels, and, yeah. lobster crates and what have you. And as the Australia got to 1988 and we had a bicentennial, those pieces of furniture were going for exorbitant prices. And there's a sense of making do in the Australian psyche. It's not like, oh, no, I'll go back to the wood shop, mm. the wood selling shop, yeah. and I'll buy that piece of purple heart or whatever else I need, a bit of rosewood and a mm. bit of sprues, mm. and I'll, I'll use that because yeah. they're the right materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you've got this idea that, oh, no, I've got this thing. I'm, I'm just going to knock it out out of what I've got in the shed there. I think it might have been Jimmy Redgate. I was talking to him about guitars, and he boiled it down to string energy going into a top that resonates into a box that gives the sound harmonic colour. And I went, all right, that's good. It's fundamental. It's like Brian DeGrucci had talked about to me, I, I went and saw him when I wanted to build, I think it was probably this acoustic, and he must have had 15 people a year go, Brian, I want to build a guitar. Tell me how to build a guitar. <laughs> and he was quite gruff. First time I hung out with him, he was quite gruff, and he talked in fundamentals. Yeah. He said, the circle is the most efficient shape. I went, thank you, Brian. Yeah. Rule number one, the yeah. circle's the most efficient shape, let's build in circles. Yeah. What else did he say? I think that was the fundamental one, but there were a handful of things. He gave me these big principles and didn't give me anything specific, mm. and it was the best lesson. It was the best lesson because I want to speak in the big, like what are the, what are the fundamentals here and how do we pull something out of those fundamental ideas? So... The way I figured it, why would you need... So, so with a resonator, a resonator's a great place to start because you've got this speaker, you've got this really powerful device 
that sits on top of your structure and the device does most of the work. So you could put a Dobro cone into a square box and it would probably still sound yeah. Dobro-ish. We're just going to explain what a Dobro is. Okay. So in the 20s, 1920s... Dob- Dobera Brothers. Dobera Brothers. I should know this. They were a pair of brothers and they they made... Would they be passive amplifiers? They would be, wouldn't they? Yeah, they're a speaker cone. Yeah, they're a speaker cone. They look like guitars. Yeah. An acoustic guitar, not an electric guitar. And they're played in exactly the same way as a guitar is played. And they have a speaker cone that's made out of aluminium. Spun aluminium. Spun aluminium. Mounted under the bridge. And what that gives is increased volume mm, incredible projection the acoustic guitar and acoustic in- instrument community has always been after volume mm. so that they can play at dances and yep. be heard yeah and these have a very specific voice and yeah, also uh, the very... brothers in arms the die straits album cover that was that's a, that's a, a dobro that's a yeah, yeah. or a national oh that's, which a, is well, the that's same. actually biscuit bridge I think that one. Yeah, so we're not going to get into there's different, it. There's different types. They have different tonality. Um, Dobro's... Yeah, yeah the, the, the Mark Knopfler guitar on yeah, Brothers in Arms. Yeah, yeah. so um, a yeah. Dobro is bluegrassy, bluesy kind of country blues instrument. Um, the Biscuit Bridge is more of a bluesy instrument and the Tricone has a bigger bass response and is blues, all sorts of things. Anyway, what was fantastic about the Dobro was I looked at it and I, I recognised that some of the manufacturers were making their tops really thick. And I went, why would you do that? And then I went and referenced, so concurrently to all of this, I'm building percussion stuff as well out of plywood. So I made a cajun, I borrowed a cajun, which is a box that's 40 centimetres by, 40 centimetres tall by 30 by 30 by 30, uh, with a three mil plywood front face that's screwed onto it. And you hit the front face and it's got a hole in the back. It's a box, really simple, fabulous instrument, just incredible, versatile, deep bass, beautiful tone, really just a great thing to, to engage in and you sit on it. So there's not this sense of sitting behind something, actually sitting on it, you're dominating mm. the instrument, man. <laughs> um, and um, I've looked at what makes, what makes a cajun work and it's structure. So if you want a thin face to resonate, you give it resistance around the outside edge and the energy that's put into that thin face comes out to the structure, bounces back into the thin face. And a resonator works in precisely the same way. So with a Dobro, they've got this big maple sound well, they call it, which is about probably 10 mil thick. And it's this ring that runs from the the top of the instrument to the back of the instrument. Um, And it's got nine holes cut out of it. So you've got this massive amount of structure in the middle yeah, of this instrument. Yeah. And I went, cool. So I made this teardrop-shaped asymmetrical instrument, but I made it from the start with this real focus on the fact that it was going to be a lap instrument. It doesn't need to look like a regular guitar because it doesn't have the same ergonomic constraints. It's yeah, not, you don't need the the. It didn't need the waist. Yeah. It didn't need the waist. Yeah. I'd seen teardrop um, Weizenborns. I'd seen, okay. you know, I'd seen these other things and I'm going doesn't even need to be symmetrical. And so I've got this instrument that kind of wraps around you to a point and you're holding this instrument on your lap. So it's tactile. It's, it's a beautiful thing to hold. It's actually a nice object. It's, it's two-thirds sculpture in the way the body's made. It's got a 50-50 weight distribution because why not? 
you've got more mass in the headstock, you're not going to lose energy there. I've used this really, you know, a structural material, but putting it into a curved, beautiful form, the laminates are actually really pretty. Like, rather than trying to hide the fact that it's laminated, I've accentuated it, and it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant thing to look at. And then you play it, and it's not, it's not the de Grucci that I would have liked, but it's good. It's, I keep coming back and picking it up. Like, mm. I've played it for hundreds of hours. Mm. It's a successful instrument because it gets used. Mm. You know, if you like the voice of something and it plays well and it's comfortable, you know, I've recorded with it, I've gigged mm. with it. It's really, it's a cool thing. And then from there, I went to make a tricone. Went, right, I'm going to make a tricone now. And I was literally had the saw in my hand, just about to cut the material up, and I went, there's about a dozen questions about this instrument that I don't know the answer to. So I went, how can we, how can we tackle this? Because I'm working in plywood, I went, well, what if you just screwed it together? So you could un unscrew the back, you know, not having a fretboard. There was all this freedom. There was suddenly all of this freedom. So I was able to make one of the ugliest... Oh, it's, she's, kind of, she's kind of lovely. She's endearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beater. It's a full beater. I, I call her Susan Boyle because she sounds quite lovely, but she's not very glamorous. It's a screwed together tricone made out of form ply, so the black plywood that you yeah. get for ten bucks for the you know twelve hundred yeah, yeah. by six hundred sheet. Yeah. It's got massive structure, which is perfect for a resonator. This was literally cut out with a jigsaw, with no no um, thought really to, to ergonomics, oh, not so much not to ergonomics, but there was no thought to comfort. She's sharp-edged and, you know. But that guitar went through oh, hundreds of iterations. I've tried... So um, you've cut it up and rebuilt it. Rebuilt and... it, rebuilt it, rebuilt it. It's back number, Jesus, I don't know, probably back number 15 or 20. You've got a few backs up there, man. Uh, any plausible idea... Mm, you go it again. I'll go, well, how would that work? And it's this idea yeah. of looking at well, how would nature deal with with this so trying to imagine okay. the flow of sound as a liquid uh -huh. so if that's how would it look because i think it's that can, thing about can we now come full circle back to the fibonacci series is this well yeah this is where it kind of came back in so yeah. i think um i started working in spirals yeah that was the idea and i've cut hundreds of spirals <laughs> i've tried all sorts of different ways to implement spirals um, whether they're separate chambers within an instrument, whether they're used as bracing for the backs, whether they're used as bracings for tops, um, whether it's a spiral bracing on the top that becomes part of a chamber on the inside of the instrument, and then you've got your back. I've used mass instead of bracing for backs. I've had some fairly successful backs, which were literally like a circle Come in a third, you've got another circle of material. Come in a third, you've got another circle of material. There's this getting energy into the mass, so it's kind of a swell almost. So you want, it takes a, a minute to go, and then once it's gone, it goes, <laughs> you know? And it works like the mass creates the outside as a spring because uh -huh. you've got this force of the movement once yeah. the mass gets, gets going. Yeah. Any plausible idea could have legs. And... It might not. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. the other thing. I've got to be able to go, oh, I've come up with a better idea. So this, this tack that I've been on for the last 35 iterations, that's a bit shit. 
compared to this idea, which is a bit better. And it's been this journey of I, I can't stop myself. Yeah. I can't stop myself. I've made 20 bodies, I think, guitar bodies, and I reckon that 10 of them have been dismantlable. And then even if it was 10 iterations per, per instrument of those 10, that's, and that's not even close. So it's been this ability to be able to change one aspect of the guitar, trial it, swap it out, bring it back, swap it out, bring it back. I can pull it back off these instruments without restringing them. Yeah. Like you don't, I'm just literally, it's like, but, 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 yeah. new back on, but, 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 tune yeah. it up, play it. Is it better? No, nah, it's a bit shit. All right, take that back off, cut it up, you know, see what you can salvage. There's no instant gratification with this process, is it? It, it is entirely about a journey. Yeah. Or is it? Well, it, there is an outcome that I'm requiring. What's that? What I'm looking for is to try and find a resonant chamber that will probably end up being complex curves. My suspicion is that there's no reason to have 90-degree angles at all anywhere inside a, a guitar. I think there's more efficiency that's potential there. It'll the question have, there is what materials do you use? Well, it might be 3D printing. Uh-huh. It may end up being... That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's going to incorporate passive amplification through part of a spiral. It'll be smaller because it will be able to be more efficient... It'll be big enough to facilitate the bass response necessary for the instrument that it's engaged with, but it'll be interchangeable in that there's the potential to make a, a bigger scale length. You scale the physical size of the chamber up, you scale it down. This is, this is my hypothetical. This is what I'm aiming for. I hope I get there before I die. I hope so. <laughs> you know? But building something that isn't hinged to the truth of traditional making... The, the, this is this thing that I'm, I'm looking at it going, if you need to transfer vibration from a string into a chamber, if you get the thickness of the material right, is that more important or is that potentially as viable as the material that it's made from? If you get the bracing right and the thickness of that material right and then the structure right, is it possible to build something that is hyper-efficient, and I don't know. I'm hoping that it is. I mean, I've, I've found some answers. I've just, the last guitar I've made, it's a bit of a cracker. It's certainly surprising people. I pulled mm. it out. I went to a music shop yesterday to look for a case for it because it's an unusual shape. That's not mm. a great idea. You um, have to build that out of a spiral too. Well, yeah. um, but I pulled this instrument out, and they, they all went, oh, that's interesting. And then I played it, and their eyes went wide, and they all went, oh, that's good. Mm. And that was people who are exposed to instruments all day, mm. every day. Mm. There's something happening here. This, is, mm. this isn't just me going... So you're coming to the end of your development period? I think I'm just at first principles on some level. Yeah. It's a bit like a go-kart's got an engine and it's got four wheels and that's it. But how, how you space your front wheels determines whether it goes around corners or not, the tyre <laughs> pressure. You know, yeah. there's all these little yeah. subtle things that... So yeah, the thing about designing something and being a designer is that that, that design never ends. It's no. just a work in progress, yeah. even if it, you sell it and it's yeah. gone out of your life for a little while. Yeah. And you look at people who've been building instruments for 40 years and they're not finished. No. They're not finished. No. Because there's always another take. And this is fundamentally, 
I guess the mm-hmm. whole philosophy f- with me runs in that there's always an alternative idea that is going to be more graceful than the resolve that you have. Mm. Always. And so there's no, there's no point in getting egotistical about it because there's, <laughs> there's the potential that mm. someone's going to come and do something that is completely unexpected that might actually function better. Mm. And it's so out of the box. Oh, it will happen. It'll happen. But yeah. that's the, and this is the thing. It's like why isn't it possible that some dude in his back shed could come up with some idea that potentially could be revolutionary, for want of a better term? Yeah. Well, it, it's totally possible that you can. Lots of the technology that's being produced now requires a huge amount of investment to get it right. I'm thinking pharmaceuticals and I'm thinking... Um, nanotechnology, you can't just do that in your back shed. You no. need a whole team of people and no. you need lots of very specialised equipment. But mm. if you're going to make a musical instrument, yeah, you can. Oh, man, I've made, I made a bongo the other day. I had this idea. I, I glued it up by morning tea time. <laughs> it was, it's pretty cool. And it's a, it's a cracking instrument. My friend mm. Fabian came and played it the other day and he mm. lost his mind. He's going, this is great. Yeah. And it's really simple. It's really simple design. I've been making yeah. all of this. So the other the other thing that I've been doing is to bring the cajun into the realm of mo- melodic or tuned percussion. Mm-hmm. So I was talking about how a cajun is a box with a front face that you play. So traditional cajun is is this single front face in a box, and the structure is the outside of the box. And the fundamental thinking with every cajun that I've seen is that the structure's the outside of the box. And the people who have put uh, multiple playing faces into cajuns don't have adequate structure, and so they've compromised every playing face. So what I did was build a chassis, working on the principle of a rally car, build this lightweight but incredibly strong chassis and tie every partition back into the chassis. And then you can make partitions for smaller drums, and they all work. And they all have equal resonance because there's so much structure within this particular drum. And so putting the structure on the inside of the drum is this fundamental shift that allows me to have my regular cajun face on the front, my left hand's got a conga face drum, my right hand's got a bongo. On the basic versions, the back of the instrument is just a glued face, which is about a whole tone higher pitched than the screwed face. I made... One, the mother of all cajuns, I call her. <laughs> Agnes. And that drum's got um, a nest of three bongos across the top and then two bongos underneath. So boom, 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 boom. And the whole instrument, every face is physically referencing another in its tone. So you've got this melodic instrument. So you could rock up to a gig with a kahuna conga and a nest of bongos in the same footprint of a regular cajun, it weighs as much or a bit less, projects and has tonality that far exceeds most of the cajuns on the market. Um, it's amazing. I, I, I keep playing cheap ones that I see in music stores. <laughs> and it's just like you, you put the material into that and then you put it in a box and like it's, it's awful. Like most of them are really, they're, they're really awful. They're not tonal, mm. they're not musical instruments. I've been working on that front and I've been making um, multi-faced bongo. So basically an ergonomic bongo drum that fits between your knees that has multiple faces and has deeper faces and has the potential of scope that isn't possible 
in contemporary percussion because the physical properties of a, of a conga means that you can't get a bongo face close enough to it to be able to do a bongo technique with your fingers and a conga technique with your hands. You don't actually have that, that option to get these drums close enough to each other to be able to play in a way that you can play with these instruments. And it's this thing where the information that I'm learning through the drums is cross-referencing precisely with mm. the information I need for my guitars and vice versa. So I'm looking at replacing mass with structure. I'm looking at um, the influence that structure has on thin playing faces. I'm looking at using um, one point five mil playing faces in plywood and really, really thin faces that are still strong. You've got this stability in that material that's inherent. It's not moody. It's not doesn't um, have issues with humidity in the same way that that regular um, hardwoods do, do. They're sustainably grown. They're quite cheap in comparison to tone woods, and they sound beautiful. Nothing that I make is going to mimic, you know, spruce and rosewood, like especially with the guitars. I've been working on this um, all plywood guitar. It's not going to sound precisely like what's come before. But what it does do is it's, it's got a beautiful even tone, like a really remarkably even tone. It's very open. It's got big bass response, it's got big mids response and it's got a big treble response. It's functional all the way up the neck. It projects, it's loud. So it's facilitating all of these things that you require from an instrument and it's got its own voice. So it's like comparing... Agnes O'Bell to Chris Cornell or Tom Waits to Nina Simone. It's like they're all singers. All awesome. All awesome. All fantastic. On pitch. Beautiful del emotional delivery. Could have been Tom Waits, people. <laughs> he pulls it up. He's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what it's, I mean? It's, it's potentially a new musical instrument or at least a new voice within that genre of yeah. musical instruments and, yeah. and if like it's, the dobro was well it, it, exactly like a classical guitar and a steel string guitar is yeah yeah like a conga and a bongo is yeah. or more probably more is a conga and a drum kit yeah it's a it's a it's another avenue of yeah. potential mm. and i don't know if i'm coming up with these ideas for the first time i don't know i can't find anyone else who's doing anything quite like what I'm doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't people, yeah. you know, the hundredth monkey thing, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it could be, but it's this progression that I can't stop. Yeah. I, like, I'm, Would you, are you looking for these other people? I've, yeah, I've been trying to find people doing unusual things, you know, yeah. like looking, and I look, all I look broadly as well. So I've been looking yeah. at, um, people making speaker boxes and how they do that and yeah. like to, how do you how are you dealing with sound in your yeah. particular thing how are you dealing with liquid yeah how are you dealing with you know and do you know when uh, charles darwin was coming up with his theory of evolution there was another guy who at the very same time was coming up with the same sort of theory and back in 1900s in fact up until 1920 i think it was uh, not the theory of evolution it was the theory of evolution and what this other guy was calling it, which is very similar. It was concurrent. Right. And the other guy dropped off for some political reason, and we don't know about him today, but yeah. it was a joint thing. They were doing it completely independently of each right. other, but they came out with the same, same thing. So same you thing. might find yeah. that there is somebody else out there. Yeah. I don't doubt it. 
if if there's an idea to be had and there's seven billion people on the world on the earth it's it's almost mm. it would be foolish to think that you've got an awesome position that you can explore these ideas it's a bit of a gift at the moment yeah you know it really is just it's a pretty rare set of ingredients to be able to do that yeah and to somehow like i don't have training in anything but i've trained myself to observe and i'm driven and i've been given this ease within certain you know um, crafts i guess so um, my mum went to wood carving lessons and the, she had a broader vision than the guy who was teaching her, and he told her to leave the class and go and find someone else. So she went, <laughs> right. to, a, she went to another woodcarving guy and said, this is what I want to do. And the guy went, that's pretty ambitious, but we'll, we'll give it a go. Yeah. And by the end of the class, she's learning to do this. All the students would come and see what she'd done when she'd come in the next week and, and the teacher came up to him and went, we learnt something together here and I wouldn't have even attempted what you did. And it's beautiful. Like this thing, mm. this mirror that she made, it's exceptional. It's really, mm. it's, it's really high standard and she could just do it. Mm. So, um, and my dad used to draw and he was a singer and musical. So there's all of these yeah. ingredients from the past that I think... And my, my sister's a great musician and she's a really talented artist and she writes and there's yeah. this thing in, the, in our blood, I guess. Wish we could bottle it. We can't. I could just spit on you. No, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> See if it works. <laughs> Where's your sense of adventure? <laughs> no. Well, maybe if I was Johnny Rotten, <laughs> maybe I'd go there, but I'm not. Yeah. There's a courage that comes along with creativity to not do what's been done before. It would almost be more courageous for me to try and emulate because there's more potential for failure for me to try and emulate. So it's a way of thinking about it? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the driver is. I'm I locked onto this idea uh, five years ago that I could build a guitar out of plywood that might work as well as a resonator guitar. And I it's have got not precedence, it doesn't down. it? It's it's got a it's got a like a, a father and a mother, but what that child is going to be, you don't quite know yet. I think one of the things that was a real driver for me, there's a man called Peter Biffin who's a, a luthier who makes knee fiddles. He's I think his um, site is spikefiddle.com. Go and have a look. The things he makes are amazing. He redesigned the bridge of his instruments. So his instruments, uh, they're resonators, so they've got a wooden cone that he makes. The bridge on the bass side touches the top of the cone and then on the treble side it sits on a sprung wire and you can move the wire left or right compared to the strings and change the treble response. And his instruments are absolutely mind-boggling. The tone knob on your amplifier. Yeah, more or less. And I saw his site and I actually sent him an email going, thank you for having the minerals to actually try and look at a different resolve for what you're doing. And he's a renegade. He's just this, he's an explorer. And he's made, I ended up coincidentally in, in one of my trips to Armadale for that big job, I'd missed the flight. <laughs> I was driving down. Forks in the road, Driving man. down Glen Osmond Road and I looked at my clock and I went, it's 8.30. That plane leaves at quarter past nine and I'm on 
<laughs> I'm on uh, Glen Osmond Road. I, went, uh, I think I've missed my flight. And so I, I kept driving, got to the airport. They changed my flight. I was, it, was, it was a travel day anyway, it didn't matter. Five hours in the airport, I just finished this Biscuit Bridge Dobro that I didn't particularly like the sound of. It didn't, it didn't resonate with me, man. It wasn't, wasn't my instrument. But I looked at all of the things that I'd done to make that instrument work and that was the turning point. That five hours in the airport, I, I at that point went, right, I'm going to build a wooden-bodied, all, all plywood as well. Like, that was the goal. Make it all plywood and make it a, a gutsy thing. That was mm. the beginning. Just think about that thought about Peter Biffin because you've set limits within which you're going to work. They're pretty strong limits, aren't they? You've got a set of goals that you want to achieve mm. and there's an outcome you don't know what it looks like yet. Mm. You don't know what it sounds like yet, yeah. but you're going for it. Yeah. But there are pretty strong limits around that goal. There are, but it's all up for conjecture. It's like the, so. If you have to give one of those goals, that no, sorry, one of those guidelines up. Yeah, if it if it if it promotes a better end result, and that's the thing. It's about being able to go. I've got this idea. I've got this idea, and then someone goes, "Well, here's this idea," and you go, "Oh, that idea's better." It's like, <laughs> oh. and my spirals. Like I, I got deep into spirals. I mean, you can look around. There's, there's iterations of spirals yeah, everywhere, everywhere in the room. Yeah. And I got to the point where I went, oh, I just need the end bit. It's the last bit. That's actually what I needed. So I was on the right track. Yeah, the cone bit. Needed the, needed the horn. Horn, yeah. Um, the gramophone horn. More or less. And there's yeah. more scope with that. Yeah. You know, you can do a, um, like a folded horn. Mm-hmm. That's the next exploratory Area. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get my bass frequencies out of a folded horn, but we'll see. They, they do in, in speakers, speaker boxes. So, yeah, there are parameters, but I'm not precious about any of it. I can't be precious about any of it. If I was precious, mm. I would have made the first instrument that I make and went, yeah, this is good because the strings make sound and stuff. <laughs> and that would have been it. Yeah. And the first all-ply instrument that I made... I showed it to my friend Maddie, who's um, a guy I played music with, lovely, lovely man, yeah. and he really likes that instrument. And I went, yeah, but now I've got bass and I've got more treble response. And he goes, yeah, but I like instruments that have got a really strong mid-tone response. Okay. And it's like, Well, oh, you just tailor it. There's a voice. Where I'm coming from with this sort of line of thought is that the creative process is a really interesting topic and it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about. I'm interested in the way you've gone about this creative process and how you've got a, an end result that you're trying to achieve and you've got to have parameters around which you work because otherwise it's just too way open-ended and you don't know, you don't... Mm. The creative process that you've undergone here is a really interesting one and I think it can be extrapolated into any design exercise for anything, yeah. yep. including your own life. Yep. Which is constant if you want to redo your bathroom. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is ways of looking and thinking about things that, yeah, okay, you're making musical instruments, but it doesn't have to be. Mm. Well, and I've, I've, made, I've I made my own backgammon set. Couldn't find one on the market that I wanted, so I made one, you know, and that just made sense. I want this object. Yeah, yeah. This you know? is that's like the fun of making, and yeah, because you want to. But I'm actually trying to dig a little bit deeper here into a creative process where you've you've got to drive to create something. Use I, I want Develop. something in the world that doesn't exist yeah, yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so for me, it started off small and then there was one little development. So there's this development from I made my first cajun with a screwed front. And then my and son that leads to something else. My son and, and I made one. Else, yeah. We put a glued back on it, and then I made another small hand drum that had a development of a partition. And then that led to what if I could put multiple partitions, which led to the mother of all cajuns, which led to the multiple bongo drum, and all of that stuff was influencing um, the guitar making. Mm. It was all and and making. An unbra two unbraced backs on the tricone that I ended up making, the, the instruments that came out of the Susan Boyle experiment. Those two backs are different thickness plywood and they're unbraced. And then I used rare earth magnets. I used um, two, two pairs, so one on the inside, one on the outside, and I'd strum the open chord and move those into the node points that gave me the best yeah. harmonic response. Yeah. So it's this... Why not? Like that's how you, that's how I tune my drum kit. I'd put a get masking tape and and put a little rise in the masking tape, or not the gaffer tape, sorry, on a point where the harmonic was going crazy, and it would reduce that harmonic, or it would influence the increase of a of a favourable yeah. harmonic. So it's this: where are the answers? And sometimes the answers are right under your nose. They like how does nature deal with this? How does how do you deal with this in this other circumstance? Yeah. And the other thing is. I'm not prepared to stop. <laughs> I'm not prepared to stop because I'm deeply gratified by problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I've bitten off some big problems to solve. Like, it's kind of ridiculous. You look at it out of context, it's kind of ridiculous. So what this guy's spent, you know, two and a half thousand hours developing a guitar that he doesn't know if it's going to work or not. It's like, yeah, yeah right, who's that yeah. for? It's like... Uh, it's for you. It's for me. Yeah. It, it, this, is, this is my recreation. Yeah, I'm gonna attempt to monetize this. It's how you this. get fulfilled. Yeah, I I dig it. I have a reason to get up in the morning mm. because there's this potential to develop something, and I don't know how, given my, the fact that I I have had access to luthiers, but I've basically worked in isolation for the last few years. This this project hasn't been because and almost on purpose because. I didn't want to know what the rules were because the rules are the rules and they're a truth to another medium. They're not necessarily a truth to this medium. And the small incidental discoveries that I've come across that will influence my percussion building into the future, they're so simple. They're blindingly simple mm. and they've been looking me in the face, mm. you know. And then that also informs the way... The guitars are going to work. The bass of the bongo that I've just made is a horn. It's, a, it's an amplifier. They're freaking loud. Like they're hurties. They're loud. Mm. So it's all of these little things that are an accumulation of taking the time to look. And I've, I've got written up here, there are two choices. You can keep looking or you can stop. <laughs> yeah. I wrote it on the wall. Yeah, it's yeah. like... What are you going to do? Are you ready to stop yet? Have you had enough? It's like, no. Nah. Yeah. No. Nah. Yeah. And while I'm in this luxurious position of having a, a really comfortable workshop to work in, a family that expect me to go and hang out in that space and make things, yeah. you know, like there's, yeah. no, there's no drama on that front. And I've had lots of time, you know, COVID's been a gift. It's 
It's been a gift on so many levels, just with the development of these ideas. So I intend to be a commercial photographer still, but I had this hope now that I can release a couple of instruments onto the market and then basically build build the range. So I've, I've developed a shaker that's beautiful, really simple to make, and I can make it from some of the offcuts from the Cahun build. I've made a pedal steel bar, which was two days of filing a piece of flat brass. There's a tap manufacturer in Adelaide who, when times are better, hopefully he's, he'd agreed when times were good that we could barter, that I could make 100 of them, and the, the guy in Handorf was going to make some leather belt holders for me for those. So I've got visions of being able to roll out all of these really little specific boutique things that, that resolve specific problems for specific instruments. And I don't know how I found the answers to these things. I just haven't stopped, I haven't stopped looking. And I'll, it's almost like a form of meditation. So where I live, there are no street lights. I walk at night time all the time. And I'll, I'll look down, fixate on an idea and look at it from every angle that I can possibly imagine. And I'll look up and I'm only 200 metres down the road and I'll just go, wow, I'm only here. Like, I've done so much thinking. There's been, <laughs> there's been so much of a progression in the way that I've consumed those 200 metres. I can't stop. Mm. And maybe it's an ADHD thing. You know, maybe I've got... Maybe I do have some condition that I, I don't Something in the water understand. in Ross Trevor back in yeah, the day. Yeah, yeah, back in the day. So, mm. But it's not something I'm prepared to put down. I'm, I'm, well, I'm passionate about it, really passionate about it. I, I resonate with it. People like the things that I make. People who are experienced, like Fabian played the four prototypes, Fabian Javier, who's a friend of mine, master percussionist. He sat down and played these four prototype bongos that I've made. And he was just like, he looked up and he's just gone, man, man. He's just like, he's beside himself. He was just going, this is incredible. There's so much here. And I've still got to resolve some ergonomic issues with those drums and I've got to make them pretty and I've got to make them saleable, like buildable and saleable. But just that response is, it's fantastic. It's really, it's, it's, a, it's a goal in and of itself to elicit a response like that when you make an instrument. Yeah. That's, that's quite beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's an awesome spot to leave it. I reckon it's, it's yeah. little, watch this space. Yeah. You didn't ask me about the superpowers. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Cold War Russia. What? <laughs> Cold, Cold War Russia, that's a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> How can people get in touch with you and see your work? Um, okay, so my photography is at ifood.com.au, so E-Y-E-F-O-O-D.com.au. So that's my photography business and uh, Small Drum Revolution, which will be, I'm assuming, smalldrumrevolution.com. So the website's almost built. I just haven't got to that hosting point of view yet. Yeah, cool. It might be .com.au, but Small Drum Revolution. So it's the idea that it's a revolution in small drumming. I'm in a position to make... Um, tricones and dobros and all ply guitars as well so and they yeah so in the guitar land watch this space yep drum land drum land um i'm very soon yep pre-production for a basic kahun so the kahun front the conga side the bongo side and the stuck the glued back i'll start there um but into the future shakers 
multiple variations of bongos, uh, more extreme versions of cajuns, probably a handful of different guitars, pedal steel bars, hopefully, and any other crazy shit that I can think of that, mm. that functions well. Yeah, bloody good. And photography, iFood. iFood.com.au. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Pleasure.